through 17. Romans chapter 4, verses 13 through 17 is our text. Let's look at it together if you would. And I would hope that you'll be back with us for the evening service. We speak tonight on our theme for this whole year. And uh, this theme, of course, is make a difference. And tonight, uh, I want to tell you from God's Word how to make a difference. Simple things, but important things. I believe they could be a help to all of us. And not only for the purposes of what we're interested in, and I am as a pastor, always interested in making a greater impact on our city and our community, our county. I, I want our community to be better because we're here. But I also think it can be that way in the context of our person. That is, if I'm not in the city of Franklin all day, if I go to Indianapolis, if I'm up there, I ought to make a difference. I ought to be better because I'm there. The people around me ought to be better because I'm there. And uh, I'm just encouraging you to make a difference this year. Don't be the same old, same old. I say it to you often. If you always do what you've always done, you'll always be what you've always been. In many cases, that's bad. We want to be different. We want to make a difference, and I hope you will. And if, if you're home, make a difference in your family. Make a difference in our Sunday school. Make a difference in our worship service, our Sunday evening service, our Wednesday night services. And I hope that you'll do that. Here this morning, I speak to you on the gospel of grace, not of race. The gospel of grace, not of race. Here in Romans 4, verse 13, Paul writes to the church at Rome. He says, For the promise that he should be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or uh, to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Verse 14, For if they which are of the law be heirs, faith is made void, and the promise made of none effect. Because the law worketh wrath. For where no law is, there is no transgression. Therefore, it is of faith that it might be by grace. To the end, the promise might be sure to all the seed. Not to that only which is of the law, but to that also which is of faith of Abraham, who is the father of all. Verse 17, as it is written, I have made thee a father of many nations before him whom he believed, even God, who quickeneth the dead and calleth those things which be not as though they were. A lot of things you can talk about, and by the way, as someone spoke to me last week, and we were talking uh, out in the parking lot for a while about uh, preaching through Romans. Uh, there's, we need to get something straight right up front when you preach through Romans. Um, I am scratching the surface. There is much beneath it that I have not touched on. You know, there are things all through it. Uh, and even in the text today, I wrestle with whether to, to deal in verse 13, the singularity of the word seed, S-E-E-D, verse 13. There's a whole sermon could be preached about that. Uh, that seed there will ultimately, as you go to the book of Galatians, find out that he's not necessarily talking about descendants. He's talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the seed of Abraham, came through seed of Abraham. And that's why it's important for all that to, to be discussed and so forth. And so there's important points to which... Uh, because in a Sunday morning service, I don't have the time to develop all the background we need to explain some of these things. I would say to you, don't let studying through or sharing with us in Sunday morning the book of Romans, you think you've got that thing conquered. Because there is a ton of stuff beneath the surface that we just can't touch because we don't have time in a, in a service like this to lay ground work. 
if we did that and you would like to do that, we could be here to 3 o'clock, and, and I'd be glad to accommodate that need. But I don't think that will fly in a Sunday morning service, seeing as how the clock keeps moving. So here's what I'd like for you to do. Um, I'd like for you to think in mindset. This is just sort of the, the, the surface truths that we can gather, and, and I hope in some cases they'll be deeper, farther down the road than you've gone before. And I hope, therefore, it'll stretch you. It'll challenge you. But I don't want you to get the idea that we've got it covered. Everything we've studied, that just pretty well is all there is to Romans. There's much more. And uh, I think a man would be pretty idiotic to assume that in a short time we do it on Sunday morning, we can preach through the whole book of Romans, chapter by chapter, passage by passage, and do it justice. So just understand that. With that in mind, I want you to see from the passage where we are today a couple of things. And I think they're very, very important. And I hope that you'll see them as being beneficial to you. First off, let me begin to saying the world around us, you and me and our church, our community, they preach the idea that there are different strokes for different folks. They believe, and they have held to this for a long time, they believe and they behave that you can do any old way, believe any old thing, without there being devastating, ruinous consequences to what they believe and what they behave, behave like. You have to understand, first off, that your belief system will dictate your behavior. You do what you do because you believe what you believe. If you believe that God is pretty much looking the other way and you don't have to answer to Him and you don't have any accountability to Him, you'll probably live a pretty loose-leaf life. You'll probably do your thing, live your life the way you want to live it rather than the way the Scripture set forth boundaries to be lived. Because your belief system will dictate the way you believe. For instance... Uh, how many of you in this room say, I believe that prayer works? I believe prayer is a functional, real... Okay. Now, if I said to you, how many of you prayed every single day this week, bar none, and I won't, do you know the average crowd in a Baptist church on Sunday morning, that number is cut by 75%? 75% of it. Now, look, you can't say you believe something, I believe prayer works, and then say, but I don't ever pray. You'll forgive me, that just won't fly in this society. This won't fly in the economy of God. It's one thing to say, I'm, I'm still working on that. I mean, I'm dealing with that. I, I say this to people often. Just because Pastor Henry preaches on a subject and covers it as best he can does not mean he's conquered it. Don't you ever get the idea that when I speak on prayer, that I've got prayer wrapped up in a small package, wrapped good and night and tight, and it's in my back pocket. I've got that down. Now I'm going to something else. That's not the way life works. I'm working on it. But it is a thing that I do make it a point that if I'm going to say I believe in prayer, I make sure that every single day there's time spent in prayer. Because otherwise to say I believe in something, it's like I believe in the sun, but I never see it, you know. And I'm talking about something I could control, which I cannot control the sun. But if I could, I say I believe in the sun, so I'm going to put it up every day. I'm going to make sure you see it every day. I'm going to make sure it's there for the world to enjoy. If I could control it and didn't do it, it said I believe in it. It'd be hypocritical. And that's the way it is about a lot of things in the Christian life. But these people have this tendency to believe and behave any way they want to, thinking there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. Then comes along somebody from the New Life Baptist Church, and they label us Christians who hold to God's perspective on that foolish idea, and they call us intolerant and narrow-minded. They say to you, independent Baptists, you said, you guys can't get a hold of this. And by the way, forgive me, but let me think logically for just a moment here about what they say. The first thing is, if indeed there is only one God, as even the world at large says there is just one God, it would follow logically 
that there is only one way to him. And the reason is because that would have to be consistent with his nature. I mean by that, if there's only one God, then in that one Godness, there has to be a consistency of everything about Him. And one thing about Him being the only one would imply logically, and if you went to a class on logic, it would say this, that there has to be one way to Him. You can't have 49 ways to this one God if you're going to go by His nature. You're going to go by His character, by what He is. Well... And let me, let me put it to you another way. If you were looking at it on the other side of the coin, you'd say this. And when I was in a class in logic, this is exactly what they said. That the world religions, every single one of them, by the way, there was nobody in, in, in any setting that I've ever been when we talked about world religions and where there were people of other religions' presence that disagreed with this statement. That is that all world religions contradict each other. They all do. Every single one of them. There are no exceptions and no exclusions. Every world religion will contradict any other world religion. They just do. They cross each other at some point, so there's a contradiction. Well, the point about that is that means two things in logic. Logic says that if that be true, then you only have two options. One, they're all false. Or two, there's only one right and all the rest of them are wrong. And may I tell you, that's where we show up. Because that's exactly what the scriptures declare. If there is only one true God, then there is only one true religion. And just maybe, just maybe, it really is those people who object to this fact who are really the ones who are too narrow and intolerant to accept the truth because they know they do not embrace it. And so my opinion is that uh, I think that logic tells you that the Christian faith is the absolute, unequivocal, only one. Logic does. If you just take logic and go to a class in logic, it teaches it. But there's something else. Life teaches us that there is a right way and a wrong way to do things. And by the way, that parallels the way of salvation. Let me give you a very practical illustration. All of you know that Brother Buck Roberts went into the hospital on the north side of Indianapolis to the heart center there for a heart valve repair or, as it ended up, a heart valve replacement. Well, I, some of you don't know that John Macbeth and I offered to fix that heart valve for Brother Buck. I said, Buck, John and I have a utility knife. We have a hammer. We have duct tape. And we have a staple gun. What more could you ask? We can fix this thing, Buck, I'm telling you. And Buck said, no thank you. <laughs> now let me say this to you. Would you say Buck Roberts is narrow-minded about my idea? Would you say that he is intolerant of my idea? Sure you would. And you'd be absolutely right. And he is absolutely smart for turning our offer down for a simple reason. He'd probably by now be dead and buried. You see, the fact of the matter is... Him buying and playing into the idea of saying, hey, I'm not going to do that because there's a right way and a wrong way to do this, and this is the wrong way. I'm not buying into that. I mean, I'm simply saying to you that salvation is parallel to life itself in regard to the fact that there are and there is a right way to do something, and there's a wrong way to do something. And I don't care how sincere you are, if you're doing it the wrong way, you're going to end up with the wrong results. And that's where our society is going. This thing about casting off that, that Christians are narrow-minded because there's only one God, they say, and one way to heaven and one salvation. That's a bunch of malarkey. There's lots of ways. Then may I say to you, my friend, uh, a lot of folks are going to watch how you end up. 
because they're going to see that it didn't work that way and you're going to be very sorry that you went your way in stubbornness rather than God's way in humility. Something else I've realized, people can be narrow-minded, but ideas cannot. People can be narrow-minded, but ideas cannot. And that applies to the scriptures, the concept of what we hold to. The ideals are neither broad-minded nor narrow-minded. They're either true or false. An ideal is either true or false. It's either right or it's wrong. It's not narrow-minded. And so what people do is they cast upon us and say, you Christians are narrow-minded. Okay, maybe we are. But our truth is truth. It's truth. So it's not that truth is so narrow-minded, because truth in the sense of uh, what they're suggesting cannot be such. It's either right or wrong. It's either true or false. And I say to you that what we are getting into in our society at large is that Christians are now being intimidated by this idea that our narrow-mindedness, well, we're not narrow-minded. We just have the truth, and we want to share it. And we're not being arrogant and cocky about it. It's a fact. Those people, and by the way, I was going to mention this later, but I mention it now. Franklin College is going to teach a course. I'd be willing as a church to pay for a member of our fellowship to take the course under the gentleman, Dr. Chandler, over there, uh, because they're going to uh, study Bishop Spong's book on uh, the relevance of Christianity. If you know anything about Bishop Spong, that is the most liberal, pro-homosexual bishop that ever put feet on the ground. And this guy is the guy, the book, that Franklin College is going to use in their Christian courses concerning the relevance of Christianity. The course costs $68. I would be, I'd be willing to pay for you to be a plant. For you to sit over and say, are you nuts? When they start talking about the virgin birth being a myth, when they start talking about the resurrection being, being a, a, a symbol, when they start talking about Christ not really dying on the cross, but he was swooned in the, in the tomb, I mean, everything they're going to say is going to be contradictory to what the Bible teaches if they go by spawn. You think we're going to have to, you think that class is going to turn out a bunch of respectful Christians? You think it's going to turn out a group of Christians who really love the Lord more because of what this guy teaches? You'll forgive me, but you're crazy if you think that. It's going to feed the minds of people who think already that the Christian faith is a bunch of shoo stuff. And I'm saying to you that God's people are going to have to learn a simple lesson. And they need to learn it so well that in the year 2004, they can speak up wherever they are and in whatever circumstance they find themselves, and they can defend their faith because their faith is anchored in the Scripture. And it's not only a matter of it being acceptable by faith, but there's much of it can be expected and explained by pure logic to defend its position. I say to you that that brings us to the lesson, the message of the day. Our uh, claim that Jesus Christ is the only way of salvation is either true or false. And we know from the many fronts that it is absolutely true, both from a scriptural standpoint and uh, many people in this room whose lives have been transformed by that one singular truth, that Christ died on the cross, He was buried, He rose again, and He has saved us from our sins. We're not what we used to be, and it's not because we've been better educated. We are not what we used to be because we've been saved by the grace of God changed internally, changed eternally. And the fact of the matter is that comes only by faith in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Our text in Romans chapter 4 continues to bear it out. For instance, look at chapter 4 and verse number 10, which we've already covered. In Romans 4 verse number 10, it says, How was it then reckoned when, was, when he was in circumcision or in uncircumcision? 
not in circumcision, but in uncircumcision. What he's talking about is a question about when did Abraham get justified? Was it while he was circumcised? Was it before he was circumcised? When was Abraham saved? When was it that Abraham got, a, as it were, a stamped ticket to go to heaven? When did he get it? Verse number 10 says, it was not while he was circumcised. Meaning, it, he did not get saved because he got ritualistically circumcised. Circumcision did not save this guy, okay? Circumcision didn't save him. Okay, wait a minute. Uh, he was a law-abiding guy. Look at chapter 4, verse 13. For the promise that he should be the heir of the world was not to Abraham and to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Wait a minute. You mean to tell me he wasn't saved by circumcision? No. Circumcision, rituals in a church won't save you. Then he must have been by law keeping. No, verse 13 says, no, it was not through the law. This promise did not come to Abraham and to his seed because of he obeyed the law. It didn't come that way. So this man did not get saved by ritualistic obedience. He did not get saved by obedience to a law. Then how did he get saved? He got saved by a person. And in this chapter, we'll see that that person is God. And in our case, he believed God. And it was counted to him for righteousness. And that makes all the difference in the world. And we'll see, in fact, it exposes a whole new line of thinking because God didn't say you had to be circumcised. You don't have to keep the law. You don't go to church. You don't have to be baptized. When God ruled all that out, what he made it possible for was for everybody to be saved. Everybody. And the text will prove that. But let's begin at verse number 14, where we left off last week. Verse number 14 says, For if they which are of the law be heirs, and you notice the if in verse 14, faith is made void and the promise is made of none effect. The if there, if people could be saved by keeping the law, faith is made void and God's promise is made of none effect. Then verse number 15. In verse 15 he says, Because the law worketh wrath, for where no law is, there is no transgression. Understand, first off, that the law not only undermines faith in God's promise, but law also underlines man's failure. And you need to see that. See in verse number 15, he's saying, because the law worketh wrath. The law works wrath because man violates the law, and therefore the law has a penalty. You violate the law, then you get the penalty of the law. And therefore it's concluded that the law worketh wrath. That means simply to person you and me and everybody else needs to see that the law did not provide anything for man's failure to meet up to God's standard. Everybody ought to do right, but everybody can't do right. They try to keep the law and they fail. They make blundering mistakes. And so therefore, if it was a matter of keeping the law, getting to go to heaven, then nobody would get to go to heaven. Because the law built into it nothing that said, if you keep the law, here's what we'll do, we'll get you to heaven. Didn't say that. What the law did, it simply provided nothing for man, but it did do one thing. It pronounced man's failure. It underlined it. It emphasized it. It pointed to it. Every time the law was stated and a man didn't keep it, it said, okay, since you didn't keep it, here's what we do to take care of you. We stone you to death. The law did not provide a provision for justification. It rather pronounced God's judgment. And it's important because in Galatians chapter 3, listen to this. It says, for as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is every one that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. Did you hear that? That says people who are trying to get to heaven by keeping the law are under a curse. You know what that curse is? Let me explain it to you this way. The book of Deuteronomy chapter 27 and verse number 26 gives us 
that curse. That's what Paul quoted in Galatians chapter 3 and verse number 10. Cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. It's the same thing that James said. When James wrote, I, he says, For whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all of it. But the fact is the curse is on the guy who does not keep the whole law. If you don't keep the whole thing... Deuteronomy 27, 26, and now Paul quoting in Galatians chapter 3 and verse number 10 says, you are cursed. If you don't keep the whole thing, you're cursed. Cursed meaning what? Well, you won't get to heaven, that's for sure. You mean if, if I'm trying to keep the law to get to go to heaven, I've got to keep the whole thing? That's right. And if you offend in one point, you're guilty of the whole thing. When the priest does the mass, if you're aware, if you've had any Catholic contact, you're aware of this, when the priest goes through the Mass, if he messes up in one point, the priest has to go back and start all over again and do the whole thing again. Because he has to be a perfect Mass. He has to be an absolute Mass. There can't be any flaws in it. it. can't be corrupted. It has to be absolute. If he makes a mistake and it's noticeable among those who are his peers who are close to him and his notice brought to it, then he has to stop it and start all over again. I don't care how many times he sipped the cup. I don't care how many uh, things he said. He has to stop that thing, erase it as if, if it were, and start all over again. May I tell you that's exactly the way it is with keeping the law? You mess up in the law-keeping bill and you're trying to get to heaven on this basis, the fact is you've got to stop and start all over again because you can't get to heaven messing up one time under the law. Keeping the law, God says, is an absolute, unequivocal impossibility for man. Therefore, salvation is impossible. Therefore, man is cursed. That's what it is to be cursed. You can't keep the law. You can't make it to heaven on the basis of keeping it. Therefore, you're cursed. And that's what he said. Cursed is everyone that continueth not in all of it. Why? Because the end result is you won't get to heaven. You won't make it. So for that reason, there's good news for you and there's good news for me. Paul wrote it later in Romans chapter 8 and verse number 3. Listen carefully. He said, For what the law could not do in that it was weak through our flesh or through the flesh, God sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin condemned sin in the flesh that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh but after the Spirit. He said, hey, I know that the flesh cannot keep that law. I know that it can try, but the moment that it falls short of keeping one of the laws, it has to start all over again. And he'll start again and get so far and he'll fall on his face and he'll have to start all over again. He'll never make it. It's an impossibility. So what's the answer? God said, I knew that. God said, I knew all along the sinful flesh couldn't hack this. But I've already got a plan. God knowing man's weakness, the law's weakness because it depended on man, God sent his own son like sinful flesh, but not sinful flesh. And he sends him to this earth and he dies on the cross. He lives a, a perfect life in the flesh and he dies on the cross as a sacrifice for sin. And now what do we do? Do we have to believe in the law? No. You place faith in Jesus Christ and his finished work. And when you do that, then his righteousness is transferred to you and you didn't keep any law to make it there. An interesting thing. Law points out our failure, our inability to live up to God's standard. Galatians chapter 3. Listen to this. Chapter 3 and verse 24. Wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ that we might be justified by faith. But after that faith has come, we're no longer under a schoolmaster. 
For ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. Listen to me. If you've got a mirror in your house, please do not go home and throw that thing away simply because it doesn't improve your looks. That's not its job. The mirror that hangs in your bathroom's job is not to make you look better. It's to show you what you are so you can improve your looks. You can comb your hair and you can do the things to your face that need to be done. And to the looks of some of your faces, you didn't spend time there this morning. You need to go back. And before you return this evening, you work there. But anyway, that mirror doesn't have a responsibility or purpose or plan or original source to say to you, let me fix your face. That's not his job. Its job was to point out your failure so that you could fix it. And that's exactly the exact context of the purpose of the law. The purpose of the law was a schoolmaster to bring you from where you are to Jesus Christ, showing you that you could not make it to Him any other way. You can't make it to heaven any other way. The law, keeping the Ten Commandments, keeping the 416 Jewish law, there are none of these were intended to save mankind. They were all intended to say, if you try to keep this, my friend, you're in a heap of trouble because you can't keep them. You can work as hard as you will, but you will fail. Because if you fail in one place, you make a mistake of the whole. Back in our context here, verse number 15. Look at the latter part of verse number 15. He says, For where no law is, there is no transgression. What he's saying is, without the law, we would have not realized we were sinners. We do not realize that we were lost people unable to get or meet God's standard if we had not had that law. Paul writes about it in Romans 7 and verse 7. He said, I had not known sin but by the law. The law is what set a standard and says if you do it this way, that's good. If you don't do this, it's sin. And you better, you better do it. God wants it done. So he's saying the law points out my failures. I can't make that, so where do I turn? Well, those who know and understand what the law is all about, we turn to Christ because the law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ and point out that he's our hope, not our ability to do good. That's not it. Romans chapter 4 and verse number 16. Interesting thing here. Verse 16 says, Therefore, and obviously that means based on what we've already heard, based on what has been taught, salvation is of faith. And notice verse 16. Therefore, it is of faith that it might be of grace. That's exciting to me. That's exciting to me. The thing is that the power of salvation or justification is in God's grace, not in man's faith. And don't you forget that. This business of the power of salvation, of justification, is not in your faith. It's in God's grace. And what links you to God's grace is your faith. It's not faith. Faith is not a meritorious work. It is not that we're working our way to heaven by believing. No, no, no. It's the grace of God and your faith in God links you to that grace. That's how it comes. For by grace are you saved through what? Faith. That's the link. It is not that faith is a work. It is faith is a link to that which God uses as the power to make us what we ought to be. And it is in faith we believe Him. And then He gives grace. To make us what we ought to be. And that's what he's saying in this verse of scripture. Abraham's faith was not in and of itself righteousness. But it was reckoned to him for righteousness on the basis of God's grace. And that's what makes it exciting to me. And why everybody in the world is accessible to salvation. Because it's by grace. And anybody can activate that or access it by faith. 
you believe what God says about Him sending His Son to die on the cross for our sin, believing we're a sinner, we needed a Savior, God sent Him, God provided Him in the spotless, sinless Son of God, Savior of the world, we believe that, and then God gives His grace to save us. Grace is God's unmerited favor. That's important. It's not lawful obedience. Grace is unmerited favor, and one's faith in God's Word is what links us to it. Remember it this way. Faith is the door to God's favor, and faith is the door to God's family. Look at verse number 16. That's what it says. To the end, verse 16, Therefore it is of faith that it might be of grace to the end, to the point that the promise might be sure to all the seed. Faith is uh, not keeping the law. It's, it's what makes salvation available to everybody. Simple stated, hear and believe. Or to those who say, whosoever will may come. That's what that's all about. In human offers, uh, if you get a thing in the mail, there are offers all the time come to my mailbox, and it's offering me all kinds of possibilities and prospects of getting and gaining and winning. You'll notice that there are always exclusions. Everybody can't win. A few will, most won't. And the biggest sucker game going is the, the state lottery. I mean, great day and a morning. The odds of winning that thing are so far out in the left field, it's not even funny. Uh, that's an absurd opportunity there. I mean, absurd. But the fact of the matter is, there's a sucker born every minute, and there'll be some sucker who'll go down and put down money and try to win that thing. Let me tell you something. Save you money. Save you money. It's not only unbiblical to gamble, it's just not smart to gamble. It's not smart to go out and look at the sun and its brightness and think it won't affect your eyes. It's not smart. So be smart. Be smart. Be spiritually smart and obey the Lord, but be physically smart and don't do a dumb thing. Put money into something that is absolutely hopeless? Unbelievable. The fact of the matter is, salvation is not like that at all. Salvation is not a crapshoot. It's not a flip of the coin or a roll of dice. Salvation is a guaranteed thing based on the fact that Christ has paid the price and all He asks from you is to believe Him in childlike faith. That's all He asks. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised Him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. So anybody who hears and understands can believe and can have salvation. And it's not an outside shot. There is nothing uncertain about faith. And don't ever get the idea that there is. There is nothing uncertain about faith. That person who is uncertain, unsure about his or her salvation is not looking at the finished work of Jesus Christ. That person who has doubts is a person who's looking at their own inabilities to live up to what they think God would demand of them to get to heaven. They're mixing law and grace. So you don't ever look at yourself and say, well, I was a Christian to a few years ago and then I just got away from the Lord and I've not been back. You can't get away from being a child of God if you ever were. Oh, you may not act like one. You may not even look like one. 
You may look like a tramp on the street. You may look like a prostitute. You may look like a hoodlum. You may look like a homeless person. But the fact is, that's not what we go by. What we go by is, has there been a transaction of grace in your heart? Has there ever been a moment of time in your life when you said, Christ died for me on the cross and He did so because I'm a sinner. I need a Savior. And right here, right now, I trust Him as my personal Savior. Nothing else I'm depending on, on Him alone am I trusting for my salvation. If that's ever happened in your life, I don't care where you've gone. I don't care where your steps have taken you, you're still saved by the grace of God because works do not enter into getting it and works don't enter into keeping it. It is salvation by grace. And that's important from this passage of Scripture because that means that it's not a matter that there's an uncertainty in it. I can know I'm saved because I'm not boasting about Rick Henry. I'm boasting about a Savior who did the whole thing. I'm not bragging about a bunch of Baptists who have a truth that's exciting. I'm saying I've got a Savior who finished the job He started. He even said He did. When He died on the cross, He said, it's finished. The whole thing's done. No other person has to come along and think that they have a whole list of things they've got to do in order to be sure of heaven. You can be sure of heaven by simple childlike faith in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the most exciting news this world can ever receive. It's a faith... So it can be of grace. And that's what the verse says. Notice Paul said in verse number 16, It is a faith, so the promise might be sure. That's an interesting thing. And you know why it's sure? Because God gave it. God gave it. Rick Henry didn't write it. Nobody on this earth wrote it. All the apostles, disciples who recorded the Scriptures for us may have done so. But this verse of Scripture is saying that the ideal in this text of Scripture is... God gave this, and therefore it's sure. You don't have to doubt it. There's no reason to. Because what God does, He does completely and totally and absolutely right. And He did the same thing with this. So this promise is sure. Quickly, and for the moments left, let me call your attention to verse 70. Excuse me, verse 70. <clears throat> In verse 17, as it is written, I have made thee a father of many nations before him whom he believed, even God who quickeneth the dead and calleth those things which be not as though they were. Abraham's faith, remember I said at the beginning, it wasn't circumcision that saved him. It wasn't being circumcised. It wasn't rituals. It's not baptism. It's not church membership today. That None of that saves you. It's not keeping the law. Verse 13 makes that clear for chapter 4. Not law keeping, not obedience to the law. That didn't save Abraham. Well, what saved Abraham? Abraham was saved by virtue of a person. And that person is related in verse number 70. As it is written, I have made thee a father of many nations before him whom he believed, even God. That's the person. The person of salvation has never changed. The participants have. Jesus Christ died for us on the cross and provided the salvation and the sacrifice of himself. But God the Father is the author of salvation. He is the founder. He's the source from which it all flows. Remember this. Christianity is the revelation of a person of God Himself and to us in the person of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. John 17, I read across it in my devotional life this week, chapter 17, verse 3, And this is life eternal, that they might know Thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom Thou hast sent. That's the revelation of Christianity. And it is about a person. And here in Romans 4.17, to make sure that no false God gets slipped into the mix, notice he gives two qualifying points, two very clear ones. Boy, I'm telling you, nobody can match these. 
Look at verse 17. He says, even God who does what? Quickeneth the dead. Did you know that eliminates all the false religions of the world? I chuckle because that takes care of Mormonism, Buddhism. That takes care of, of, uh, of, of Hinduism. That takes care of Islam. That takes care of the whole crowd. Jesus Christ is the only one standing after you disqualify everybody who cannot quickeneth the dead. You show me a bona fide, verified, certified statement from any religion in the world where any of those religions raise the dead, and, and I'll eat my words. The fact is none of them have because none of them can. There's only one God in heaven who ever raised the dead, and, and may I tell you that none have raised the dead other than he from the beginning when if you call Adam dead he lay there as a created being from the dust of the earth and God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and Adam became a living soul all the way down to the New Testament when Jesus Christ called for Lazarus to come forth Jesus Christ proving that he was God's son raised several people in the New Testament from the dead God's representative on this earth God can do that and in this context, this is the God we're talking about. But also in this context, it's Abraham talking about something else. Let me read a verse to you. This comes from Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 11 and 12. In context here in Romans 4 and verse number 17, I believe that Paul is referring to Abraham's body. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 11, he says, Through faith also Sarah herself received strength to conceive seed and was delivered of a child when she was past age, because she judged him faithful who had promised. Therefore spring there even of one, and him as good as dead, so many as the stars of the sky in multitude, and as the sand which is by the seashore innumerable. He's talking about, I believe, in context, Abraham's body. God proved himself to be the God of the universe, the God of the wonders of creation, by bringing out of Abraham's body living beings, offspring that would live and give life and would be descendants as the stars of the sky and as the sand of the sea, innumerable. And he's saying there's only one God could do that. It's this God of Abraham. But he qualifies it a second time. And he said he also is the God that calleth those things which be not as those things they are or that were. That's to, uh, obviously, don't misunderstand him here. As I read an article some years ago, there was an article, a newspaper article, about a man who had been caught lying in, a, in city government. And this guy quoted a verse of Scripture. That's a common thing to do anymore. You know, if you're a pagan, you ought to, everybody, every pagan's got a verse of Scripture he knows well. And so this guy whipped out. He says, doesn't the Bible teach? You know, he said this in a newspaper article to defend himself. He said, doesn't everybody know that the Bible says and states that even God calls things that are not as though they are? Boy, that covers a lie, doesn't it? He said, God calls things that are not as if they were. Why can't I do that? Well... There's a lot of reasons why you can't do that, and there's a lot of reasons why that's not what this is. It's typical of pagans to take Bible verses and twist them. For instance, have you had that thing? Uh, Brian was on this a few weeks ago on Matthew uh, 7. 7? Judge not that you be not judged. Yeah. Matthew chapter 7. How many times have you heard some pagan walk up to you after you've made some condemnation of sin? And they'll say, hey, don't you know the Bible says judge not that you be not judged? You just want to laugh, you know? Because this guy's saying, you ought not judge nothing, you know. Let everybody just do what they will. First off, you please remember this. 
Matthew 7, 1 does not mean that you never judge. Quite the contrary. Matthew 7, 1 says, look, judge all you want to. Judge everything you will. But judge it by the same yardstick on them as you used on yourself. That's what it says. Because it says, look, if you've got a big, you've got a big moat in your eye and you're trying to take a speck out of his, judge it by the same basis. But here it doesn't say judge nothing. It says judge everything. Judge everything you come in touch with. But make sure you judge it with the same judgment that you judge. Don't judge those people by one standard and judge yourself by another. You judge everything by the same standard. That's what it's teaching. Boy, isn't it exciting to help pagans interpret the Scripture for you? They always give this slant, you know. Sort of gets them to a point they can condemn us, but set themselves free. That's not what that passage says. And by the way, those are not the only ones, but that'll suffice for now. The point I make in this context, in this passage of Scripture, is that Romans 4, 17, and what God is saying is, He's referring, I believe, in part, and I believe there are two parts here. He's referring in part to God's creative work in the beginning. Hebrews eleven three says this, Through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the Word of God. Listen, so that things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. Ex nihilo. It's to take something out of nothing. If you get the creation magazine, that's what it says under ex nihilo. It says something out of nothing. That's what God did. God took something or made something out of nothing. Now you tell me who else can do that? People who can't raise the dead can't take nothing and bring something out of it. They just can't do it. That's what the world, the educated community, can't embrace creationism because they can't comprehend that anybody can take nothing and make something out of nothing. God can. God can take nothing and make something. And you're looking at an illustration of it. I was a nothing when he found me. And I may not be a lot of something even now. But I'm more than I was. And what I am, I am by the grace of God. And to his glory. And that's what this passage of scripture partially says. But it also says something else that relates to Abraham. But in our context, Abraham, notice in verse 17, and ask yourself this question. Does it say, and did Paul quote it correctly when he said, verse 17, as it is written, I will make thee the father of many nations. Is that what it said? I will make thee the father of many nations. Is that what it says? As it is written, I will make thee. Is that what it says? Talk to me. No. What does it say? I have. That's a crucial point in this passage of Scripture. He did not say, I will. He says, I have. God stated it. Listen to this. God stated it as if it had already been accomplished. Yet two things were a problem. One, Abraham hadn't even, at this point, even the son through which all this was going to happen been born to him. And the second thing that's so amazing, he was right now almost 100 years old. And God's saying to him, I'm going to make you a great nation. Abraham said, yeah, right. Let's start with one. What do you say? But there's no indication that Abraham for a half a heartbeat had any question. What he was saying is God's promise was to say that he was going to call those things which be not as though they be. Listen, you and I can count on God's I wills as meaning I have. And the Bible is full of it. There's the passage over in Joshua. Remember Joshua fought the battle of Jericho? 
chapter 6 of Joshua, verse 2, The Lord said unto Joshua, See, I have given into thine hand Jericho, and the king thereof, and the mighty men of valor. What's important about that, that's before they ever make the first step around marching around that city. I could do that. God walked up and said, Rick, I'm going to give you the city of Franklin. Now, here's how I want you to do it. Oh, if he's already said he's giving it to me, it's a half a heartbeat that I'm going to go ahead and do whatever he says because he's already committed. He said, I have given it to you. It's yours. Just go take it. Let me tell you something. You, When you read through the Scriptures, look for the I haves in comparison to what the person is doing. In this case, what was future, what was future to Joshua was present and past tense to God. And that happens all through the Scriptures. One other verse before we cut out of here. The passage in Romans chapter 8 and verse number 30 about your salvation and mine. Romans 8, 30. The whole passage is important all the way from Romans 8, 28 on down. But it says, Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called, and whom he called, them he also justified, and whom he justified, them he also glorified. There's a thing about it that you need to understand that I can't nor can you lose your salvation if you've truly been saved by the grace of God, and there are many reasons why you can't. But one of them is tied up in this text of Scripture right here, and that is this. What God started in me... In a sense, from his viewpoint, he has already finished. That's why you get all the past tense on those words. He called. He's already justified you. And down the road, he's going to glorify you. From a human standpoint, that's future. From God's standpoint, it's a done deal. It's the same thing that Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. But God, who is rich in mercy for His great love wherewith He loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ, by grace are you saved, and hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. I'm as good as if I were already in heaven, and from God's viewpoint, I am there. Because it's a finished thing with God. I have His Word on it. I have His promise. I have His commitment. And that's the way salvation is. I close with a, a simple story I both read and to a degree experienced years ago. It was uh, when I was in school years and years ago at Tennessee Temple in uh, Highland Park Baptist Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee. We often went down to the city of Chattanooga down on Bailey Avenue and we'd preach on the street corners. One of the best experiences I ever had in my life was taught me more than anything else. I was down there standing on top of a fire hydrant preaching. You ever done that? You have to have a lot of balance to stand there and do this number, you know. And that's the only way you get up above the crowd. The crowd was all that year, and I wasn't high enough to do that. So I stood on this thing, and a couple of guys stood behind me. And if I really lost my balance, they'd, you know, put me back upright. But anyway, the point, point is of that story was that I was preaching there, and it was a large gathering of people. And I got to preach the gospel, and there was a Jehovah's Witness came up to me, and boy, did he ever take me to the cleaners. I was a young Baptist student there in the school, and I didn't know beans about a lot of things, and he challenged me about a lot of his faith and whatever, and I just got off my water hydrant and sort of put my Bible under my arm and went back to the school. You know, I learned a valuable lesson. I didn't have the answers I needed for this guy, and it made me study and study hard. But anyway, one day we went down to preach on the corner, and uh, as we were down on the street corner, one of the guys who was a, a comical nut anyway, and, and, uh, and I might add a good preacher, and today is supposedly pastoring a great church, but he said, hey, I got an idea. Let's do this. And he told us what he wanted to do, so here's what we all did. We went over on the other street corner, and we started pointing up in the sky. Just, oh. and, then, and then those guys, and I didn't, I'm more sanctified than that, they started arguing. 
Oh, it is too. He said, no, it is not. It is too right over there. It is not. Next thing you know, there was 15, 20 people around us. He said, I know it is. It is absolutely. No, it is not. And they just back and forth. The badgering went on back and forth. And everybody was serious. These guys didn't smack a grin. They're just pointing and just talking and arguing. Next thing we looked around, there's 40 people around us. Next thing you know, these guys just, we just all just slipped out through the crowd back to the back and went over to the next corner and watched them. And the crowd grew, and before the Lord, there must have been 75 to 100 people on that street corner pointing. And we're sitting over there looking and saying, that is unbelievable. We started something. And one of the guys said, you think we ought to go stop it? I said, stop it? You crazy? That's what we started. We wanted them to look. We wanted, What are they looking at? I don't know. We didn't see anything. We just wanted to see if we could get them to look. You know, I look back on that as a college prank, and I had a lot of fun. Nobody was hurt. Nobody was bothered. But they stood there forever, and people began to talk about what they saw. Now, you know what I thought looking back on that, what I think every time I think about that experience? That reminds me of all the man-made, man-born religions of the world. Somebody points and says, hey, over here you can, go, you can get to heaven by doing this. And somebody else would come alongside him and say, you know, I think you might be right. I'll go that way. I'll go that way with you. Let's, let's see if we can't find salvation in that. Let's go that way. And then they go that way. And he tells somebody. And then they go that way. Next thing you know, you've got people all over the place going somewhere where there is no place to go. Seeing something there is nothing to see. But all the time thinking they see something. Thinking there's something behind all this. You know, I'm grateful the Christian faith is not built on that kind of premise. The Christian faith has substance. The one thing that this world cannot argue against is the fact that it changes lives. Nobody comes in touch with salvation in Jesus Christ, but what it transforms them, changes them. It can make a drunk sober and keep him that way. It can take a drug addict and it can make that drug addict realize that there is nothing in the drugs that satisfies their life and fulfills them like a relationship with Jesus Christ and serving the Lord can. They, they just can't find it there. Homosexuals, and there are several, there are many homosexuals that have left the homosexual community. And by the way, it is not inborn. You're not born a homosexual. I think anybody knows that. You're not born that way. It's a choice. You make a choice, a sinful choice, and you may be the product of many influences in your life, but it's a choice. But there are many homosexuals who walked away from that sinful, wicked, ungodly lifestyle to live for the Lord Jesus Christ. And they would tell you if they stood here, it was by the transaction of grace that that took place. I could have never done it on my own. But God changed my heart through salvation in Jesus Christ. And I say to you, the scriptures are quite clear. Hebrews wrote it thus. Hebrews 12, 2 says, Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. When you look to him, there is someone to look at. There is something to see. There is a life that's real. There is a fulfillment that cannot come any other way. There is a void that's filled. There is joy that comes. And there's possibilities that only God knows are ahead of you. Do you know Christ as personal Savior? Have you believed on Him by simple childlike faith? Not have you worked? Have you been baptized? Have you somehow been a good worker, good servant of the Lord? Uh, that's, that won't cut it. God's not looking for your service until, first of all, He has you as His child. Once you know Christ as Savior, service is an option, an opportunity, a privilege, and a responsibility. 
but not before. If you're here without Christ today, don't go out and try to serve Him. You're wasting your time. What you need to do is come and trust Him. That gets salvation to you. Our Father in heaven, thank you for your holy word and for its clarity and simplicity, but absolute truth. Thank you that this is not just an option on the table of a buffet-style choice. This is the truth. And it's up to us now to take it and obey it and live by it. And the most important step we'll ever make is this first one. That this morning in this place, that there are people here who have never believed on you as Savior. They're not saved, though they've tried to live a decent life. They may even be called good by their neighbors. And they might even think of themselves as religious. But what's important this morning is how do we stand before you? How do you see us? And it doesn't matter then what other people think. It matters what you see and you know. So this morning I pray speak to every heart here in this room and help us face this question. What have I done with Jesus Christ? Is he my Savior? Have I believed on him and him alone as the only Savior of my soul? Father, I pray you'll bring forth fruit from the lives of those who do not know you this morning. Help them to see the importance of turning to you now. Not later, not at another time, another place. But even here, where they've heard the truth and you've brought it to their attention under conviction. Pray for Christians this morning that you might help us to understand that now that we're in your family, we do have a responsibility to be servants. And one of those things you've asked us to do is to take this message and to share it with other people. This world is full of people who are trying their best, working their hardest to try to get you to accept them. What they don't understand is salvation is not tied up in that. Salvation is tied up by the finished work. And Father, we need to tell the world that. We need to show them that there is no need of them working and laboring and striving to try to serve you to gain enough brownie points that you once will approve them in entering heaven. But rather that you've already approved their going to heaven by sending your son on the cross and dying for their sins. What is important now is a monkey, so to speak, is on their back. They have to believe that. It's their responsibility to hear the truth and to believe the truth. So help us to be bearers of that message, to share the gospel message wherever we go, leaving tracks and speaking the witness as we should, because everywhere we go, there are people who are dying in their sins for want of knowing Jesus Christ as the Savior. And remind us, he said himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man, no man, no man, no man cometh to the Father but by me. So nobody gets to heaven apart from believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to see how important it is that we who know the truth of that tell it, share it, give it, send it, do whatever we have, pay whatever price we must, but the world must hear of that simple salvation in Christ. Bless the word. Bring forth the fruit as you would be pleased to do so. Honor yourself. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand with us, please? Turn in your hymn book, if you need one, to 282, just as I am. If God has spoken to your heart, spoken to you about your need of Christ as Savior, we invite you to come. We have no interest in embarrassing you. We have every interest in helping you. So if you're here this morning and you never believed on Christ, you'd like someone to take a Bible and show you, or if you just have questions you'd like to have answered, then we'd like to help you. We can only know that if you'll come and tell us. This is an invitation. That's what it's for. It's an invitation for you to act upon that which you've heard. 
it does no good for a preacher to get up and make a fool of himself through the foolishness of preaching unless God is going to use it to bring forth fruit in the lives of people who hear it. So the point made is, no matter what you think of me and no matter what you think of job we did in the message, that's irrelevant. If you heard the truth and God has spoken, then he's going to hold you accountable for that which you got. It's important that you not lay it aside and you not dismiss it, but that you obey it. And we ask you to do that in this process. Believe me, we want to help. We can do so if you allow us. So please come if God has spoken. As we sing 282, verse number one, you simply obey the Lord. Together and sing. Just as I am without one plea. If God has spoken to your heart, would you come? If God has spoken to your heart, would you come? God has spoken to your heart. Would you come? We're going to close, and I do appreciate so much your coming to be with us today. And uh, I appreciate very much if you can be back with us for the evening service. The Patch of Pirate presentation will be made in the service. Then we'll have the message from God's Word how to make a difference and i hope that you'll have a desire to do that this year and then after that we'll have our birthday fellowship in the next building and we'd be glad and honored and happy if you could come and stay and spend time with us in fellowship tonight hope you can let's bow our heads we'll be on our way home our father in heaven we're again thankful for the privilege we've had to be here this morning it has been an honor and it's been ours thank you for patience with us we're not what we ought to be we're still in the process of becoming we ask you, Father, to continue to work in our hearts and our lives as a church and individually. And help us, Father, I pray, to come into conformity to your likeness. We do thank you for the Sunday school hour and the word we've heard. Pray you'd help us to become doers of that this day. We do pray, too, you'll prepare us for the evening service and the presentation with Patch the Pirate. And bless our young people, Brian and Lane, as they share that with us in the service tonight. And use it as an edifying point for us all. Bless them through the message and help us to indeed be interested in how we can make a difference. And may these points of truth that we share tonight be beneficial and practical, useful. May they be something we can take into the marketplace and the workplace this week and become more, as it were, effective changers of a society of people. Help us make a difference. And then bless our fellowship tonight. And fellowship of God's people is so important. Father, you've ordained that in your word. You've made that clear. And I pray you'll help us to take our responsibility to this as we would any other responsibility in the Christian faith. So help us to be here and be faithful. Help us to use this time of eating together to encourage and talk and share and get to know one another. Father, this oftentimes would eliminate this business of not feeling as if we have friends and we don't have the connections in a church we ought to have. Sometimes it's because we leave and don't return and we don't come back. We don't get into a setting where we can sit and talk and chat. Father, this is a golden opportunity and you've made it available to all of us. So just like salvation is available to all, may we understand this opportunity of fellowship is to us here at the church. So speak to our hearts about this and help us not to think selfishly what we want to do or like to do. Help us to think openly to the corporate body of Christ. What's good for others? Do I need to encourage them, to be a help to them, be a blessing to them, get to know them? Father, I pray that you'll cause us to think in these terms because these, we believe, are biblically oriented. So bless as we go now. Give us safety and protection to our homes and give us safety as we return tonight. And again, bless your word as it goes forth. We commit it to you and your care knowing you do all things well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
May the Lord bless you and keep you until we meet again. You're dismissed. Thank you.